Hey guys, welcome back to the Marriage and Real Estate Podcast. We're your hosts, Kevin and Aisha Shelton. And today we are lucky to be graced by the presence of Scott Crone. Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Kevin? Hey, Scott, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. I appreciate this opportunity. No, thank you guys. Uh, Well, thank you for being on the Marriage and Real Estate Podcast. We're excited to tell our audience a little bit more about your journey. I know I'm familiar and you have a background very similar to mine coming from the commercial side. But if you want to tell our audience a little bit more about how you started your career, how you moved into the investment role and some of the cool things that you've been able to do um, in your entrepreneurial journey. I started by getting my master's in architecture. And so my professor actually owned a real estate development architecture and contracting firm. And so my master's thesis was a 400, 100, 400 unit, $100 million project. So I worked on it while in graduate school, um, <clears throat> first in the office in the morning, then in the afternoon in class, and then in the evening in homework for three years. And then I started my own firm, uh, you know, a little bit after that, I worked for him three years and then started my own firm. And we got into real estate development, design, build, and construction as well. So we started off in single family and then quickly went into multifamily and mixed use. And then uh, after the crash, that's when uh, we started getting into self-storage. So, you know, the, the funny thing is people on the commercial side, people know this, that architecture is a very clear path to kind of development. But on the, I guess, internet side, people see, you know, architects and they're like, hey, well, how do you, how do you get into development? But larger projects need that level of architecture and engineering and kind of feasibility to understand it. So there's a very great path uh, for people who have backgrounds in architecture to get into bigger projects like multifamily, self-storage, you know, commercial assets, retail, stuff like that. So what was your thought process as you were going through school and you kind of got exposed to these big deals to make you go, hey, I want to do this for myself and start my own business? Well, my first semester, so I had a, a, a month off between college and um, graduate school. And so when the first class of my graduate program was a, a trial basis, like even though I was accepted in the program, we still had to complete the first summer semester in order to be fully into the program. And that was from 9 a.m. in the morning till five at night. And we were in uh, Crown Hall, which is this architectural masterpiece by Mies van der Rohe. And there was no air conditioning. It was super hot. And we're all sitting in there drawing in the middle of the summer. And um, it would sometimes go beyond five o'clock because we would you know, have projects due and stuff like that. But uh, everyone was talking about the roles of a developer, the architect and the contractor and <clears throat> who really gets the job done. And, you know, without the developer, there is no architecture. You know, the architect is just making beautiful paint- pictures. And so, you know, that's when I quickly realized that the the key to having a job was being on the developer side as well as doing the design, the build. And so when I was got this opportunity to be the TA for my professor after that first semester, that was when I began recognizing the power of integrating all three into one company. Um, I didn't really start off thinking I was going to have my own company when I did at 28 years old. It just came out of happenstance. So after I left that company, the CFO uh, broke away and was starting his own development company. He was not doing the architecture, just doing the development and contracting. And they brought me in to facilitate this 90-unit, $3 million project. And um, so they had the finance guy, the sales guy, and the construction guy. And two guys were brothers. 
And none of them were talking with the other. And so my job was to, to bring all this information together and really come up with this financial performa. And um, when I got done with it, I said, how much money is this supposed to make? And they said, uh, you know, $3 million. And I said, well, you're going to lose a half a million dollars based upon the figures from the bank, mm-hmm. figures from the sales and figure from the construction. And that's when computers started getting pulled off desks and locking the offices and all this. And I'm sitting there going, I just left a job at the top 20 firm to go to the startup with these three guys. And I'm a month into my job and like, what's going on here? Thanks. So it became pretty clear that they couldn't afford to keep me, but they couldn't afford to lose me either. So that's when I said, hey, what if I start with you, if I start going part-time with you to keep your project going, then I can go part-time and, and begin being a developer on my own. And so it was, that, that's what really spurred me to, to start my own company at the age of 28. So did you save the project? Were they able to make money? Um, I got it, I got it uh, going for about a year. And um, after a year, we had enough going on in my own company that I said, you know, you guys have, you know, your feet underneath you, you have the, all the contracts let, you have all the people. So we've, we both felt it was time for me to move on. And, and uh, that's I went full time on my own. No, it's fun. It, it's funny. I got in trouble. I, my degree is in construction. And I remember having a conversation with the dean of our college about um, exactly what you're talking about, kind of bringing everybody to the table. Right. And I remember I asked him to shadow some architecture classes. I said, hey, um, I'd love to shadow these architecture classes. And it was like restaurant design and all this cool stuff. And he said, Why? And I said, well, I want to understand what they do, too, so that I can make sure, you know, we're all on the same side of the board doing the same thing. And he said, no, that's not how this works. He's like, they produce the drawings, you build it. If the drawings are wrong, you send it back and they do some stuff. He's like, whatever they do doesn't matter to you. You just build what's on the paper. And I said, that doesn't make sense to me. If we're all on the same side of the table and we all have this common goal, it can be way more efficient if we're talking to each other. And he did not see it that way. And I actually got my hands slapped quite a bit for trying to find out, you know, what the other people on the other sides of the table were doing so that it could be a better cohesive project. And that served me well later, but in college, it didn't serve me too well. Well, I wish you were uh, at our school because I taught college architecture for five years. And um, the whole point of it was that if the design needs to follow the form, so form follows function. So this was a curriculum that Mies van der Rohe and my professor, Alfred Caldwell, came up with during the 50s and 60s. And the whole premise of it was the details of the construction should define the structure and define the details of the building. So we're having our students learn like, what a footing is. How do you pour a footing? How do what goes in the aggregate of concrete? All these different things. So they understood all of the details because we've seen plenty of drawings by architects where we've literally gone and said, we can't build this. Yep. Like th- this is a waste of money because it- it's physically impossible to build what you've designed. And they said, no, it's not. And we literally point out like, you know, things. And we do it politely, but we point out different things like, okay, well, this, you know, this is, there's no structure here. Or how do you get the plumbing or the HVAC up or down? There's no place to do it. And, you know, there's there's an art to understanding how a building goes together. So I, I applaud your your foresight there. No, thank you. Yeah, they they definitely had a lot of things to say about architecture in our school. They we went on a, a site. To Evil a guys. <laughs> yeah. And they yeah. had a they designed this floating piece of glass and everybody's sitting around and they're, they're just rubbing their chin. They're like, 
So how is this supposed to float in the middle of the air? It's like, oh yeah, and the architect's like, it's just supposed to be there. It's like, well, it doesn't have any wires, any string, any support, any, you know, you got to figure it out. It's like, this doesn't make sense, but people don't really, if you don't put it together, you're designing something that ultimately can't get built, or you're trying to build something that wasn't designed to be built. It just doesn't work. So you got to work together to make it happen. So I'll get off my construction. High yeah, but Kevin is Kevin is fanning out on the the technical conversation that you guys are having, <laughs> and I'm going to bring some balance to this marriage and real estate. Uh, Isn't that what marriage is about? <laughs> it is. So so so. Typically, our audience is, is people who um, are passionate about their marriage, but also trying to figure out uh, what to do in real estate, how to invest in real estate and or build a business in real estate. And so we bring couples on to talk about like how we how we make that work. Right. And Kevin and I work together, obviously, but not everybody does. But if you're married, your partner is still the person who helps to carry some part of your life so that you can go out and do what you do in the world every day, right? Um, and so for you and your business, you clearly, we joked about this earlier that you and your wife don't work in the business together. That's correct, right? That is absolutely correct. Yes. Okay. But how does she, I'd like to know how she supports you so that you can go out in the business and do what you do. Well, first and foremost, I mean, you know, being an entrepreneur is not an easy thing, right? Nope. It's yeah. uh, it's a lot easier in many respects to be an employee and get a paycheck, know exactly what's coming in, and you know you can create a budget and you can, um, you know, allocate your spending and all those sorts of things. And that's how my wife was raised um, by her father, who was a pastor, but also a business administrative pastor. So he was, you know, what's your budget? What's this? And being an entrepreneur, you know, it's like. <laughs> I think we're going to make this, you know, we, we should make this in, in a given year, right? You know, you never know, right? Because it's, it's, there's not a given, you know, it's like you make money when you sell something, you know, you make something when you close a deal. Um, so, you know, you can't predict exactly what your revenue stream is going to be. So what my wife has done has been incredible, you know, so she's been incredibly supportive of me pursuing my entrepreneurial dreams when I was, you know, 28 years old. So we've been married three years. You know, um, you know, I began flipping a house and tearing a roof off a house that we were supposed to move into the day that she's in labor. You know, so we went into the hospital and, you know, I'm on the phone with the carpenter and stuff like telling him how to you know, take things apart. And, you know, so it's like, get over here. <laughs> you know, like, but, you know, there was the type of thing we we're sitting around waiting for so long. And, you know, but that's life. Right. You know, family interacts with business and business interacts with family that you can't separate them. So if I didn't have someone who was supportive and encouraging me and, you know, we've been married um, almost 30 years now, um, I would never have been able to accomplish these things. And, you know, when I read posts and, and blogs and different things about people, like, what do I do if my partner's not on board? Like, how do I get into real estate? Well, that's a tough one, you know, because they got to be on board they got to see the potential. They got to see, what you're striving for. And it's just not real estate. It's any entrepreneurial business. If, yeah. they're, if they're not a believer in you, then, you know, you already have one strike against you. You know, it's, it's funny. Um, everything you're saying is amazingly true, but people don't think about that when they're, they're just jumping in the water. Like, Oh, 
I'm going to go do this thing that could cost me everything and I don't have to have my partner on board. Well, if that mortgage doesn't get paid, you definitely <laughs> you need somebody on board. So, you know, you talked a little bit about pivoting your business uh, when the um, the first kind of awake crash hit. Right. Um, no, that wasn't the first crash, but <laughs> oh, not the first crash. But that was when you pivoted your business. Right. Was right. it late or was it a little bit earlier than that? No, I mean, it was 08. I mean, we, we pivoted a couple times, but 08 and 09 was the biggest one because, you know, we we just finished, we were flipping homes every two years. So we were, we moved, you know, seven times in 10 years wow. and we just built the final house. And, you know, I, I woke up and, you know, I'm hearing that, you know, Bear Stearns or Goldman Sachs, all these banks were, you know, like those didn't crash, but other ones were, were closed. You know, I was just like, what is this really going to mean? No one knew what it really meant, right? And I had a business partner at the time, and he's like, "Why aren't we doing what we always been doing? Why, you know, why are we not just doing more spec?" I'm like, "I can't get loans. No bank is giving us loans. We have to pivot." And he didn't want to pivot. And I'm like, "We can't keep going this direction." So you know, that was he went in one direction, I went in the other. But that's where I began getting into more multifamily and self storage. Because that's where the money was. You know, we had to follow what was available because at that point in time, no bank was lending on anything speculative. You know, they only wanted cash flowing assets. They didn't want any risk. So yeah. as you pivoted, oh, well, go ahead, Aisha. I was just going to say, you know, with hindsight being 2020 and, you know, most of the conversations we have are with people who haven't done this yet. Right. Um, and we completely understand what you're saying because we've had to pivot our business on several occasions as well. Um, but I'm just thinking about how how important it is, how important those pivots were and how uh, foundational they were to the success that you have today. Can you tell us more about how those pivots help to make you successful in what you're doing today? Well, one, I think you have to have a mindset of growth, right? So if you don't have a mindset of growth or improving, then like my former partner, like, well, why aren't we just doing it the way we've always done it? Well, the market's not there. The conditions aren't there. We can't do that. So if I if we're stuck in that way, then going back, you know, your previous comment is, you know, if a paycheck's not coming in, guess what's going to happen? You can't make that mortgage payment. Guess what's going to happen, right? And so one of the pivots that we did is we went strictly design build. And so instead of doing work for ourselves, we were opening up to doing work for other people. And that led to the cash flow. So if you're asking me what, what was the repercussions of those pivots, it's the fact that, you know, I've had a company since 1998. So, I mean, the, the first one was, you know, um, 9-11. Then we had the housing, uh, the internet bubble crisis. Then we had the housing crisis. And then we've had the pandemic in each of these cases. We've been able to keep our business going and you know continuing growing through that period of time. No, I think that's crucial. It's it's funny how you you find the water when you're starving, right? Or when you're thirsty, right? So, you know, pivoting your business to design build helped increase the cash flow. We had a very similar story where we had to increase our cash flow. So we couldn't own it all. We had to do some fee-based work. We had to, you know, pivot our business several times. So, you know, we applaud that and um, love to hear the stories because they're so inspiring to us for people's journeys who are ahead of us. Like, okay, we're where we're supposed to be when you have to pivot your business. It's a natural thing because you're going where you can thrive, not necessarily um, kind of wither on the vine. So uh, as you got into self-storage, which, A, first, you said the money was in self-storage. What 
what did you do to identify that market or identify that opportunity? And then now from where you started, then initially pivoting your business into that, where is your business grown? Well, I wish I could say that I had this Zen moment where I was sitting on a, you know, on an island and I just had this epiphany, right? You know, so it, it wasn't anything as glamorous as that. And people say, well, did you always want to be in the self-storage? And I'm like, no, I didn't grow up thinking that I wanted to own lockers. Like, come on. <laughs> That's no one's aspiration as a five-year-old, right? So um, I actually had a client who attended a, a work boot camp and was talking about buying distressed self-storage. So I was a real estate coaching at the time too. Um, I left teaching college architecture to, to do real estate coaching. And, you know, he was explaining to me the model and I was like, okay, well, this is just a, a simplified version of an apartment building. It's, a, it's apartments without toilets. So, you know, if I'm, look, I'm looking at the layout, I'm looking at circulation space, I'm looking at gross rentable square feet and what, what, you know, how much we can get for that and all those sorts of things. But as we studied the model, I couldn't find, he couldn't find a distressed self-storage. It was really hard. And so, you know, it was like, is it an eight cap or a nine cap? Well, those are all equally good dis- conversations, but that, that that's not going to say, that's not where you're going to create generational wealth. That's where you're going to create income, right? And the difference between income and wealth. And so, you know, as I was getting in, it's like, man, this model is really good. And then I went back and looked at it. I was like, I went back to 1979 when, you know, there, there was the uh, oil crisis. And I, I studied the occupancy level of self-storage. And in every major downturn and every major recessionary market, self-storage dropped one or 2% and then rebounded three or four. Mm-hmm. And it just continued to go up. And I, you know, we, we overlapped this and then, um, a little over a year ago, I presented this at a, um, I was awarded an, an, an award in Vegas and I was asked to give a speech about the real estate market. And I compared 1979 to what we're going through now, but I did this in, in March of last year. And I said, we're on the verge of a major recession. And people are like, no, you know, and everyone's poo-pooing it, right? But I was like, I took 10 different factors of the economy in 1979 and I compared them to what we're going through now. This is in March of last year. I'm like, Look at all these same economic factors. Mm-hmm. We are worse than we were in 1979. And so, like, th- these are me reading the tea leaves of what's going on. But though that was, and I said, that is the benefit of me being a history undergraduate versus, an, you know, an architecture undergraduate, is that I get into that, that looking at history and seeing the patterns and seeing what's going on. And that's how I, I came to this decision that, you know, there's power in self-storage. And I, I deemed it recessionary resistant. So as opposed to recessionary proof. Nice. So, and I'm and I'm gonna get technical and Naisha, you can you can wean me back. No, um, no, go ahead. As you as you look at 2023, 2024, 2025, and of course, you know, you were able to look at the tea leaves and predict, say, hey, we're gonna have a major recession. Where do you see the market going? And specific to your industry, but real estate as a whole. Well, I, I don't think there's going to be any changes until the next election cycle. Um, you know, um, and that's where I've been. And that was part of my analysis there is that if we look at these election cycles right now, the monetary and the fiscal policies are not aligned. And yeah. so we have this divergency. Right. So we're, we're going to I believe we're going to be in a continued recessionary process until there's an, a, a, an election change when the monetary and fiscal policy align. And at that point in time, we will have a, a growth again. So historically, and I, and I said this even you know two years ago, 
Um, I said, historically, since Carter, Carter was the last president that we only gave one term. And the recessionary was so bad in 1979 that Reagan won 49 out of 50 states. It was the most lopsided victory, right? And after that, we've given every president eight years to set their political agenda, yeah. right? And for the most part, I mean, it did go Reagan-Bush, but then it's alternated between Republican and Democrat. And it's just gone back and forth. We give one party eight years, then we give the other party eight years. So I said, historically, we should be giving Trump eight years mm-hmm. unless the fiscal policy falls apart. If his fiscal policy doesn't work, then we're going to have a change in the electionary process. And sure enough, that's somewhat, I mean, granted, he stepped on his own foot. He said some things that he shouldn't have, but people were down on the economy, They were, they, which didn't help the fact of all these other things. I think he could have overcome all the other things if the economy was doing better. Now we have Biden. Again, we should be giving Biden eight years, but if things continue to be in a downward trend, Biden will predict, history predicts, only have four years. And so I think at that point in time, the only way that um, the other party wins is if they present a different fiscal policy that aligns with the monetary policy. Mm. And we have that pandemic riding on both both terms, right? Like, you know, I've had the beginning of it and Biden had some of it too. So it's like the underlying political tensions and social tensions, all of other things, it's just been a precursor this whole way too, right? For all mm-hmm. this change. And then it filters into uh, filters into the economy and filters into fiscal policy and foreign policy. And you have all these components to it. So when you look at the future, right? Like, of course you don't have a crystal ball. Where, do, where are you investing your dollars? Where should people be investing their dollars as we go through these seasons? Other than self storage, because I'm gonna, I'm not gonna or, give you or self storage and why if it if it is self storage. Oh, okay. Well, then I'll you know, double down on self storage and tell us why. Well, I, we invest in self storage because of the fact of how resilient it is in recessionary markets. Uh, like the, just this week, in one location, we took fourteen reserva- we took fourteen contracts, and another one we took ten contracts, and you know they're granted in their lease up, but in a week, averaging over two rentals a day is is phenomenal. I mean, typically you want to get in lease up, you want to get one a day. And here we're averaging over double that in a week, right? So um, that is why we're we're doubling down on that. But I mean, the bigger thing that I'm saying is that I'm, I'm investing in myself, mm-hmm. okay? Um, and people say, well, that's incredibly arrogant or how do I do that? But I think we should all be investing in ourselves, right? So if, if we're not doing everything that we can to improve our own businesses and, and what we're doing, then that will that's going to hurt us longer going forward. So we're actually developing a whole new product, a whole new concept that I can't really describe right now, but it will be involving both um, multifamily and self-storage. And so we're we're actually going back into the multifamily arena, but it's not as simple as that. Um, But, you know, we're, we're looking at this trends in real estate, but also we're looking at trends within the marketplace and working to address, um, some bigger trends that we're seeing based upon housing, workforce, um, storage. We're taking all these factors and, and combining them. No, I love it. Are you are you specific to only certain markets that you're kind of bringing this concept to, or your self storage business in general? Are you nationwide with your approach? It will be throughout the country. Very cool. 
That's exciting. So we'll just have to sit back and wait to see what happens. We'll have to keep following you, Scott, to see what comes about. Tell me for people who are, say that they want to make money in real estate or build generational wealth. It sounds like for you, self-storage is one of those things that is a pretty secure way to go from a real estate investing standpoint. Um, can you tell our audience how someone who has no self-storage facility, how they can go about getting a self-storage facility and or building a, a portfolio of self-storage facilities much like yourself? Absolutely. So they're, they're, we classify storage into three different classes. Okay. And it's it's different from if I say class A, class B, or class C, and let's say multifamily, you're thinking like really good. Okay. And I don't want to really buy that one. Right. That's not what we mean in self-storage. So when we say class C, that means like first generation, more rural drive up type facilities where, you know, it's your traditional vision of I want drive through, maybe it's gravel, maybe it's paved. But then there's these rove lockers and I put my stuff in there and I have to, I'm an hour outside in the country, right? And they're small, maybe like 100 or 200 units. We classify that as class C because that's like first generation storage. And we can, we equate those to like a penny stock. It's mm -hmm. good, good clipping coupon, that sort of thing. Not mm -hmm. going to build generational wealth, good income, which is why a lot of mom and pops own them. Yeah. Class B would be more. Um, near the suburban, maybe like 200 to 400 units, maybe climate controlled, but they'll be gated, have key, you know, technology behind them, maybe, you know, an entirely touchless system throughout the entire process. And uh, we consider that a blue chip. So good, steady performer, right? A consistent performer. And then class A is more urban, which is totally climate control. You drive into the facility. It's, uh, you know, the doors go down and you can unload your stuff in a dry, safe and secure environment. And those are like from 400 to 1,000 units. <clears throat> and so those are investment quality type things where the REITs are looking to invest in, you know, those type of facilities. And so that's predict predictive. Traditionally, what we've been doing, we've been taking underperforming commercial buildings and converting them into self-storage. So like we took the original Lincoln Log Factory and converted it into self-storage. We took the first fireproof building in Milwaukee and converted it. We took like an, an abandoned um, corporate building in downtown Dayton and converted it into self-storage. So we totally changed the use of these buildings in order to improve the, the wealth or the income of the building, the value of the building. So if someone's looking to get into self-storage, you know, a class C or class B could be a good place to start if they want to be the owner operator. I would suggest maybe with a class C that get their feet on the ground, learn the business because it is both a real estate play as well as a retail business. You can't forget that it's a retail business. You have to market. You have to, you know, have a presence out there that people can find you and be able to pay and how do you collect income on a regular basis and how do you take contracts? I mean, it's much more transactional than um, apartments because, you know, Someone could say, I'm moving out, you know, yeah. and then at the end of the month, they're gone. You know, they don't have to give you notice. They don't have to do anything. Um, but then also you can replace them a lot quicker hmm. because it is a retail business. So that would be like a good place to start if they're looking to be more of a passive sideline than a B to A. Uh, class B or class A would be someone that you can invest into a portfolio or people are buying these assets and, and doing it. So we, when people call us up and ask us, like, how do they get involved? We always ask them what are their goals? What are their objectives? What are they trying to overcome so that they position them correctly? So that, you know, if they're saying, hey, I want immediate cash flow, then our speculative developments 
aren't appropriate for them because we have to buy the property, build it, and begin leasing it up before there's you know cash flowing income off of them. What's typical hold time? How long do you guys hold a newly developed asset, and or is it in perpetuity? No, it's, it's typically five years. Okay. And so that's what we've been doing for the you know the past five years is developing this portfolio that we have, and and part of it was our brand was created out of the fact that when we were working with third party management, um, you know big REIT names like you know big operators of self storage, we saw how they were operating for their own business and not for ours. Like they were mm. using our business to suck our income and our revenue so that they could perpetuate their business but they weren't enhancing ours. And so we we got rid of them and then we've created our own brand, one-stop self-storage. So you had to basically build your own infrastructure to support the retail underlying business. Right. I mean, we had to, you know, everything down from our logo, our phone number, our webpage, you know, our, I mean, that's where I'm wearing a red coat because of one-stop self-storage. It was like, how do we build this entire brand that we're creating from scratch, right? So you know, and then having that web presence, you know, making sure that we have the ability to take revenue, take contracts all via the web page, um, you know, and tenant insurance, all these different things um, that we had to create all these systems in order to have them in place to make sure that we were operating, be able to operate. No, I love it. I love it. Um, and I could go technical all day. So we definitely okay. have to, to follow up on that. Um, to go into our second segment, what do you think is separating couples out that may feel stuck? Like what advice could you give somebody to just move forward, take that next step, do that next thing to get them started in the process of investing in real estate? Well, I think it's no different than real estate or anything else. Like when we have a mental block, right? Let's just call it a hurdle in our lives. Um, the thought of attacking the problem typically becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's easier to procrastinate and push it off and do something else, which might be productive. But then when you're finally forced to address it, you're like, it, maybe it takes you five minutes. You're like, oh, that was not as bad as what I originally thought, right? Um, so the biggest thing is understanding what, what are those mental blocks that are, are overcoming your, you know, over that you need to overcome. And for me, a, a big part of that is understanding your own personality type. You know, um, there. I'm a big believer in a program or a concept called the Enneagram, which was developed by these fourth century monks, and they were geniuses that came up with this stuff. I don't know how they came up with this stuff, but they did. And so, like, you know, one of them, you know, it was similar to my father-in-law, which is, you know, an intellect. And it's the analysis by paralysis because they don't want to appear to have failed or been wrong. And so, like, the biggest hurdle, it's just, like, overcoming that that fear of failure, right? And for someone who's that, you know, an intellect, that's a lot harder to do than someone who, like maybe a perfectionist could be too, because they always want to be perfect before they move into it. But there's other types. And I think part of that is understanding what your type is and then recognizing that if you're one of those, that that is the block or the hurdle saying, okay, well, what do I have to do to overcome that fear? You know, so the Enneagram, it helps us identify where we are but it, the intent of it is to move beyond it for the sake of others. And so that's one of the beauties of truly understanding is how to grow beyond that. You know, it's funny. People always say generational wealth, but I think what you just said is the key, right? How do you be move beyond yourself for the benefit of others? And whether that's your immediate surroundings or your future generations, you have to almost sacrifice your discomfort and get comfortable with the idea that I might have to do something different to change the future of my family for generations. Absolutely. 
I, I took a two and a half year program. So I say I'm, you know, investing in myself. That was one of the things I did for the last two and a half years. I just completed it. It was, it was called the Transformation Center, but working on, you know, how to become a better leader, you know, so that I can make or help make our business better. And so that was two and a half years that I invested in, you know, myself in order to fulfill that. Oh, man. And see, now the business is going. No, that's awesome. That's we'll good. See. <laughs> what do you what or who okay, do you think was essential to your growth in business? Well, going back to your first question, it was my wife. I mean, she's she was the one who first did that program. And uh to put it in perspective, she was TC9. So she was the ninth group and I was TC17. So it was like eight groups oh, later. Man. I was like resistance, like, ah, you know, checking this thing out. I'm like, yeah, this sounds weird. And then, you know, then I you know, dip my toe in the water. I'm like, ah, oh, this isn't so bad, right? And then, you know, I still had to sign up with two of my buddies because I thought it was, you know, in case it goes bad, at least I'll have my buddies with me. And so, um, you know, that was, uh, you know, but without that, you know, I wouldn't be where I am today. So, you know, I'm saying my wife, not just at TC, but my wife helped open up those doors to see where areas that I could grow and how to, you know, become a better leader. Yeah, That's I love beautiful. that. I love it. I love it. Do you have a favorite real estate book, real estate or business book? Well, the the, the book that got me in knowledgeable about this whole program is called The Road Back to You. And it's mm-hmm. by Ian Morgan Crone. Um, no relationship. So I'm not getting any kickbacks, uh, different spelling. But um, so The Road Back to You is like a, a good precursor to understanding these concepts. But, you know, it's it's dra- dramatically changed how we do business because I'll give you an example. Um my our director of construction was dealing with a, a design build client. And he's like, I can't get her to make a decision. You know, you you, you said, hey, you know, give her give her the options. You know, pre- present everything. He goes, I presented everything, and she just won't make a decision. And I said, well, you you could you know maybe relate because you're very similar. I think she's a five. She's analysis by, by paralysis. Mm-hmm. So why don't you give her two? Give her two decisions. Mm-hmm. two things to choose from. And then she started making decisions. It's like, do you want A or B? Yeah. And so, um, you know, just that. And then, so not only do we have, we we look at it within our office with everybody in the company. So we, we each know what our numbers are. So, you know, one's a peacekeeper, one who fears conflict. And we'll say, hey, look, you know, this could be a little bit uncomfortable because you're gonna have to deal with some conflict here. Are you good with that? You know, and it's not a condescending way, but it's more of like, hey, I'm supporting you so that if you begin feeling uncomfortable in this, this isn't an area for you to grow in so that you okay. can do your job better. But we're gonna we're both gonna acknowledge what that is so that that way you can get supported in that. Does that make sense? Yeah. It yeah, does. And I love that style of leadership. I think that kind of empathetic approach helps not only grow the staff, but also give them the ability to feel comfort, comfortable in their own skin where they can maximize their strengths and somebody else can kind of help ease their weaknesses in the organization. So I like that. No, that's good. Um, As we close, can you tell me or our audience, what do you think they, if you're interested in self-storage and sorry, that was like, Kevin, you're frowning at me. Cause I had a I was just trying card. to understand. I'm looking at you. 
<laughs> you, know you guys the, have been married the, a long time because I can't even see Kevin's eyes with his glasses and the glare. <laughs> I, 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 his facial expression speaks to me right now. No, uh, I'm, I'm looking up. The weird thing is I always want to be cognizant of my eyes, but yes. also I'm trying to look at the person speaking, but it's it's not directly aligned. So here's what I was trying to say. Okay. Because we're on Zoom and when you hear the audio version, that's why we're having this this eye conversation. But what I was trying to say was if you had any advice for couples who are like, okay, we want to do something similar to what you do, what advice do you have for them? Learn how to understand each other and understand what their motivation is so that you can resolve conflict. And that's that's going the road back to you. So my wife and I are like diametrically opposed in terms of our type. Okay. Like it says like these two types should not be married. <laughs> okay. Like, it, Me too. <laughs> and so, you know, once I began to understand where she was coming from, when, when she, you know, where I was coming from, it like opened up a whole new world. Mm-hmm. So again, it's like, how do you work through these things? Because let's face it, not everyone thinks that being a business owner is easy. Or, you know, being an entrepreneur is easy. It's just like, you know, unicorns and butterflies, right? It's the furthest things from the truth. You're, you're going to have like a thousand no's for every yes you get. And you have to be yeah. able to, you know, rebound and you have to be able to grow through that and be be comfortable with rejection, right? Um, and people that you, people that you uh, really are in relationship or, I mean, I'll, I'll give you a story. Um, a good friend of ours was, you know, buying a house and, uh, you know, remodeling it. And, um, you know, I, I said, well, if you need, you know, if you want me to take a look at it, if you need help, you know, just let me know. And she goes, oh, no, you're way too expensive. I'm like, who's doing your work? And she told me, I'm like, I know they're double our price. You know, it's like, wouldn't even show me the plans to give a, a bid or proposal, you know? And this is someone I know. And some people just aren't comfortable with that, right? And you you have to be able to accept that rejection and then still be in relationship with the person, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, mm-hmm. it's the same thing in a marriage. You're going to have to work through these failures, these challenges. But if you don't have a mechanism for understanding where the other person's coming from, it's going to make it a lot harder. That's really good. That's really good. Thanks so much. Tell us about where we can find you on the internet, right? Where can we find you and what do you have going on? What should we know right now? Well, if if they want to learn, if any of your listeners want to learn more about self-storage, um, if they reference this show and email us at info at coda, C-O-D-A-M-G.com, we will give them two different things. One is a feasibility study. So when we did our Dayton project, we hired third-party consultants to assess the property, determine the validity of the business model for self-storage. And so it's like over 100 pages, and it gives an analysis of not only the national market, but of that specific market, why self-storage does well. We will give your listeners that as well as um, a a self-storage deal analyzer. And if they have a a project or a question about a piece of property or location, if they email us, we can set up a call and we'd be happy to go through it. You know, we're not going to steal anyone's deal. The the industry is way too small for that. We're not going to, you know, it's it's not worth my time or energy to go around stealing people's deals. But we will give them a, a general yay or nay. I would go for this. I would not go for this thumbs up, thumbs down, um, to look at it and say it's worthwhile pursuing or it's not worthwhile pursuing. And the reason why I say that, I was I was speaking at a conference and um, you know, afterwards I was listening to another speaker and, and she heard that I was in self-storage. So she came up to me and she said, you know, I have I have 10 acres in Austin 
I'm going to, I'm going to convert it into self-storage. And I said, did you do a feasibility study? She goes, no, I'll do that after we started. You know, that's, that's what we hire the consultants to tell us, you know, what to do once we've already started. I said, no, this feasibility studies before that to determine whether or not you should do it. Yeah. And um, she goes, oh, no, it's, it's, it's a great market. There'll be no problems. I said, I'll tell you what, give me the address and I'll do some quick research. And then I'll also give you, you know, a quick feasibility study for it. And um, she gave me the address and I, I Googled. This is how simple it was. I Googled the, the address and I put in self-storage near me. And like 24 facilities popped up within three miles. Okay. Yeah. And the next day I, I saw her and I said, you know what? I would not recommend it. I'm like, I don't have the exact numbers, but I'm pretty certain there's like 24 facilities, like within three miles of your facility and the market's oversaturated. And she said, oh no, there's not any near me. You don't, you know, that, that can't be right. And so I got, I got the study and the national average is seven square feet of lockers per capita. Okay. That's where supply equals demand. Okay. So if you're above that, you you have too much supply. If you're below that, you have too little supply and you have unmet demand. So we're always looking for facilities that are like two square feet of lockers per capita or four. We might build at six if we are still under seven, those sorts of things. She was at 24 square feet per square. <laughs> I'm like, whatever you do, do not build self-storage there. You know, this, is like, this is the wrong market for you. And I don't know what she ended up doing, but you know, that's one of the things that will help people with. That's really good knowledge. It's funny. I've, I've in my investing journey, looked at some self-storage deals, um, just, you know, stuff, mom and pop stuff that you come across. Um, but I've never gotten to the weeds because I'm a builder and I just I am always in my own brain about the stuff that we're working on currently. But uh, I'll definitely be reaching out to you to learn more, of course, and be able to talk the technical talk. Uh, you said info at CodaMG.com. That's right. That is right. Um, and we will make sure that we put all that information in the show notes. Uh, and we appreciate your time. I think this was amazing. I'm a a nut for technical information, history, construction, architecture, all those things in my jam. So uh, I know Aisha's like, yeah, Kevin really liked this. Does everybody no, else? it was good. I, 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 you know, I too love to soak up knowledge and things that I don't know. And so the the industry of self-storage, I'd never considered. And I know you looked at a few deals before, but now I'm like, okay, well, maybe we should, maybe we can diversify and not actively, right? But to passively, if it's recession proof, I'd love to passively invest in, you know, some self-storage options. So that just opens up a world that I may have never considered before. So absolutely. We got 10 acres in Austin for you, if you want. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but again, thank you so thank much you for so your much time. Scott. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.